This episode of Super Pulp Science Podcast is brought to you by a short collection of horrible fairy tales by Andrew Buckley, available from amazon.ca.com and whatever the hell else you, you are right now, that's you can get it anywhere. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am here with my long-suffering producer, Dan Vatabancourt, and we have tracked down, in the wild, fairy tale writer Andrew Buckley to tell us about what makes a good story. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. So... I know you're probably tired of asking so many of being asked so many specific questions about Stiltskin, your novel about the uh, uh, son of the Mad Hatter and all of the fairy tale stuff that goes in it. So instead, I'm going to jump to the book I just saw you unbox: horrible fairy tales. Tell me about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a short collection of horrible fairy tales is a compilation of six fairy tales that I wrote. A while ago now um, that were originally a companion piece to my full-length novel Stiltskin and I wrote them partially as marketing and promo materials uh, partially because I really love fairy tales and wanted to write some original ones and because I like the original fairy tales that were kind of gruesome and I wanted that kind of element but with the same satirical humor that um, I wrote uh, Stiltskin in um, and uh, yeah they just worked as kind of back then they worked as just marketing pieces for the full-length novel. And this time around, I, I decided to take a bit of a different tactic. Um, I, I teach a fair amount of novel writing classes and I've always been traditionally published. So I also wanted to self-publish something. And so I decided to compile those original fairy tales and tweak them up a little bit and put them all into one glorious little book that I can resell and I self-published it. Dun, dun, dun. I know. Now, for the dear listener, it's important to, I think, give some context that since I'm from comic book land, primarily, in comic book land, if somebody makes their own story, draws their own story, prints their own story, brings it to cons and sells it, it's just a comic. There's almost no distinction between what's self-published and what's published by the big two. If it's a con, if it, the form matches, the consumers of that world appreciate it. And their main question is, how do I find the next one if it's not available in stores? There's no negative stigma attached in comic book land to, I made this myself. In fact, the DIY nature of comics means if you're not making your own stuff and doing convention exclusives, people wonder why not? Do you actually really love working in this genre or don't you? Um, Whereas, from traditional publishing, there is this sort of weird misconception about a regular publisher versus a book that you completely control. How did you make that decision to say, ha ha, damn convention, I'm going to do it myself? (laughs) Um, it's, It's a mixture of things. Years and years ago, eons ago, back in yesteryear, um, I, when I was first published, um, I, my first book was Death to Dumb and the Goldfish, and it published December 12th, 
2012, I think, originally. And I remember sitting there and wondering, like, what the hell do I do next? Like, it's published and woo, it's great. And I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to actually do with that now. Do I keep writing other things? Do I write a sequel? Do I do I do I do I? So um, I started a podcast uh, that was short lived, but I recorded 13 episodes and I reached out to people in the industry to basically ask to find to fact find like, what did you people do after all this occurred? Uh, and one person I spoke to was a gentleman called Michael Sullivan. He was a very successful self-published author of fantasy. And he lives out in Eastern Canada. Um, he And he caught the wave of self-publishing uh, just as it started. And he his wife was a professional marketer. And so they had, they had this perfect fusion of him being able to self-publish and her being able to market his books. And he basically got in as an early adopter of self-publishing and he made millions. Like he, he got a six figure deal with Orion a couple of day, uh, years later and he ended up breaking his contract because he just wasn't making enough <laughs> with a actual traditional publishing method as what he was self-publishing. And so that always sat in my brain as like, cause I'd always thought you have to do the, the traditional publishing. You, you get an agent, you get a publisher and that's how your work goes out into the world. And even teaching novel writing, even I, for a while, held onto this stigma like, you know, you shouldn't self-publish first. If you self-publish first, then you are kind of, you're lynching yourself a little bit because uh, a lot of agents will then not look at you. A lot of publishers won't look at you. And that still sadly remains true in the industry. But as somebody who was already tra traditionally published, you know, a few months ago, well, actually as long as last year sometime, I'd been chatting with a friend about it. I'm like, I should try it because there's so many tools out there. No one's going to like pull my publishing contracts at this point. I should give it a try and see how easy it is, how effective it is, and how I feel about having, you know, that kind of control over my work. So not rely on uh, hearsay, but actually experience. I, yeah, I wanted to know both sides of the coin because I've worked in publishing. I've worked for publishers. So I've, I've been an author. I've been, you know, a publisher. Like I've seen both sides, but I hadn't seen the self-publishing side. And as far as the process goes, super super damn easy so what that tells me on the one hand i mean it's great because it is that easy um but i still hold on to the same stuff that i teach and that i mean it sucks because it's that easy it explains why the market is so flooded it explains why there's so much content out there now and why it's so challenging whether you're self-published or published to actually get people to read your work so it's as far as an experience is concerned it's interesting what i do like is that it's super cheap for me to get copies of my own work to resell at conferences. That is a huge plus that I have never experienced before. I, I buy so little of my own product because all my publishers in the US and to get US copies printed and then shipped here, even with my author discount, I've got to resell them for what seems like a ridiculous price to me to actually make profit. Yeah, absolutely true. Controlling that means of production is essential. And so for the dear listener who's wondering like, you know, but traditional publishing or like being with a big publisher is the way to go. I think it's important to characterize the following. If you're lucky, you may be able to negotiate 15% royalty. You're more mm -hmm. likely to get 10%. If you're getting 10% royalty, then what you're actually saying to yourself is I'm giving up 90% of revenue. Yep. You better be getting something great if you're giving up 90% of your revenue. Mm -hmm. And with many mid-range publishers, you're not getting anything great. Nope. You're simply getting books in stores that you have to sell 
10 to earn what you could selling one yourself at a conference. Yep. Yep. This is kind of the realization I'm now coming to. I mean, I'd always kind of heard that was kind of the way, and I, I speak at enough conferences and I like going to cons and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, it should have been a very logical step for me to take to find a way to actually have my own, a lot more of my own product to sell in person, because like you said, the royalty rate with a publisher and plus with an agent, he also takes an additional 20%, no fault to them in the slightest. They get me the contracts. Um, but when it comes back to the author and it's not like I'm seeing, even with the self-publishing, it's not like I'm going to see a massive amount of royalties come from those books through the online distribution part of it. Like my royalty rate with Amazon on KDP and for the ebook and for the print copy isn't much. It's under a dollar, no matter what the copy is. Yeah. Um, but my margin, as far as me being able to buy them from Amazon and get the nice printed copies and then sell them the cons is so much wider. So from that perspective, it's really great. Uh, that's, that's a massive plus that I really wasn't fully aware of. She embroiders tapestries that resemble them. Well, in a way, sir, they, they are gold. In what way are they gold? In a sort of a, a gold way, they are gold. An advice that we've given here at the studio to lots of folks is, you know, because they'll see some things that we've done, some moves we've made at the studio where they're like, oh, well, you arranged with Friesens and you uh, ordered 5,000 copies of your book and the cost per unit is so deliciously low. But they forget that that, you know, 250 or that 350 is times 5,000. It's not as low as they say. Oh, totally. Right? And then you have to warehouse it, then you have to ship it, then you have to do all this kind of stuff. That there's this amazing place where we are now where you can test it first mm -hmm. with KDP and with these, with these other print-on-demand services where you can say, like, is there any demand at all? If you sell out of a couple hundred copies, then yes, maybe print a thousand and get that down. But maybe your threshold is only a couple hundred a year. It doesn't right. make sense to print 5,000 books for that delicious cost per unit. So you have to figure that stuff out. It's a lot of trial and error. So the, this being, I'm classing this as an experiment because if it works, then I would, I would self-publish a full novel and see how that goes too. I mean, this is just a little anthology. But as an experiment so far, I, I think there's more value in self-publishing than what I originally thought there was. There's uh, also the educator part of me also notices that if you're visiting schools and you're telling um, students, uh, write your own stories, make your own stories. But the only way you'll get published is if you have an agent and you have representation from Simon and Schuster. There's a disconnect between what you're showing them to do and what yeah. you're doing. Whereas if you then show up in the classroom, you say, I do have agented representation, but here's something you can do. Work hard on your stories, make them good enough that people will buy them, test and see if people will buy them. Here's the copies of my stories that I'm doing that way. It really creates, completes that loop where a student can now see a next step that isn't, oh, I'm JK Rowling, but instead, right? I well, can yeah, and a feasible step. like. The concept of having to complete a, a whole piece of work and then query agents or query publishers and go through the whole process and then get a contract and then wait a year to two years before your book is ever even available is daunting and discouraging in a cultural society where we're so used to everything being given to us on demand all the time as soon as we want it. Um, that it's a little bit archaic and there's no way 
I don't think there's a way to speed it up. This, this I think they've sped up as fast as they can with email and email queries and that kind of stuff. I don't think they're ever going to go faster than that. But then you have self-publishing, which is boom, instantaneous. I compiled it. I had my graphic designer do the cover art and I published it within seven days. From me deciding I was going to do it to me actually having it done was seven days. So I mean, you'd already written it. And I'd already written it. And it, realistically, if I factor in the time it took to write it, I probably wrote all those fairy tales within a couple months. So that is a much that's sure. And I have other books that I have either taken rights back and now own myself, or I have I have two unpublished manuscripts sitting that I could theoretically, if I decided I could just self-publish and it would probably take me, you know, a month maybe to get everything together on all the assets and editing and such sorted out. It's hard to say whether which what's what's worth <laughs> what's worth it. I do want to maintain. I do think it's important. I, I like the idea of closing the, 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 the circle on it. I think it's important, and it's always important to me at least, that I still have literary representation, that I still am traditionally published, um, and now that I can also maintain a certain amount of self-publishing, because I think that that wonderful little trifecta there is, is, uh, gives me a, a little bit more beneficial knowledge that I can share with other people, because I can really see like the whole length and breadth of that uh, landscape and that's something that I was missing before for me it's a lot of disappointment management it's why I do both right so if you have a book that you're you you're thrilled your agent has found you a publisher or you've found a publisher yourself and you have that elation okay they're gonna make it and the book is finished and now they're doing design and when is it coming out oh two years from now yeah right so now I'm disappointed again because all my excitement has to be put on hold. So if I can switch seats into, now I'm gonna do a book that is myself, completely controlled, and I'm gonna put it out in that interim time, then to the, from the outside, it seems like I always have something coming out. Yeah. Right? Which from the perspective of a future publisher, this is of use. Totally. They're always putting work out. Well, should we get on the train or should we let it go by? Right. This is, um, I think, an important part. Whereas if you're just constantly waiting, it might take you 10 years to get five books out. But in that 10 years, if you had those five from traditional publishers and you did five yourself, now you got a book a year every year. Yeah, but there's definitely a there's still a problem with that, though, because that that stigma, that stigma still exists and traditional publishers like just just hate it i interviewed as part of that podcast series that i did one of the gentlemen that i interviewed like conversely michael sullivan self-publishing you know wonderful success story um jack white who wrote a lot of king arthurian uh legend who passed away a couple of years ago he lived locally actually not far from me and we sat down had a wonderful chat we got singing to the sword. part that was his big one right or the which one? one singing sword Isn't that yes his? yeah I, th- I think so yeah he did all the arthurian stuff and he was he was traditional. He moved to Canada from Scotland. He got an agent. Penguin picked him up. Like he was traditionally published to you know, to the nines, and he was successful. But he came through a time when there was no digital publishing, no self publishing. Like the competition. And there were bookstores everywhere. Everywhere, time. like totally able to you know be able to do that. Um, but when we got to the the in the Q and A session in the interview, when I got to the part and asked him what his thoughts were on digital publishing and self publishing, he just raged for like ten minutes. He was <laughs> livid. As an older gentleman, like his Scottish bro came out and he got so frustrated with it. And it, that interview is still somewhere online. But that section, he just hated the fact that 
the gatekeeper, the gatekeepers who managed the quality, uh, who managed, you know, what people should and should not read were completely removed and everybody can just go around them and anybody can do it. it in his mind, he belittled what he had worked on for four decades. So it, it's, I think that that, that archaic thinking is still going to be in existence for quite some time. Well, let me throw a wrinkle in there. You're going to say something. Else? I just wonder: is there any type of public per perception of, of lower quality of self-published books versus big name publishers? Right? Like, I I kind of feel like that is a bit of a perception that it's not because it hasn't gone through all the processes necessarily that all these other professionally produced books have. That it's not mm -hmm. going to be as good. Often, you can tell by the cover. Is that right? You can actually judge a book by its cover? Oh, yeah. Really not, <laughs> because this is a visual medium. <clears throat> it's not a visual medium. We're on a podcast. Oh, pardon me. Right it's not a visual medium. That's what I meant to say. I'm going <laughs> to show you a cover. We're not going to say the name of the book. Okay. We're not going to say, I'm going to show you two books off of this shelf here. I'll show you two, Andrew. And you okay, tell yeah. me which of the two. But let me hear your thoughts on that, Andrew, while Greg is doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I, I kind of agree with Greg. It, it kind of does come down to the cover because if somebody's self-published, you can almost always tell that they're self-published because their cover is generally pretty terrible. Uh, that, but does that, is that indicative of the book being terrible though? It could be the best writer in the world and they just haven't gone through the process and decided to, you know, go through the gatekeepers to discover that. Or, you know, maybe they're absolutely terrible. Who knows? First all, of all, Dan, okay. we're not going to name names. We're not going to shame any authors. Okay. Everyone no, is no, doing no. their best. Okay. okay? And okay. accidents happen five miles from home. Oh. So, right. I think that's what's happening on these, on one of these covers. It's just, you're almost home. Oops. <laughs> Right. So here's two books. You you point to the one that is self-published. Okay. Here's two books. You tell me by color scheme. Ooh, which, there we go. Which of the two is self-published? Here's here's one. Okay, not that one. And here's the other one. That one. That one. They're both self-published. Mm. Oh. And that's the difference. Yes. Right. The one mm -hmm. of them clearly asked a professional about graphic design. Yeah, what, why'd you hold up this design. one when you- <laughs> Yeah, for it. And one clearly did not. Yeah, okay. Right, so it does come down to the cover in the end. Yes, father? Ah, wash your face, put on a dress. You're going to meet the king. My father, you've been drinking in town. The king wants to meet you. Put down that chicken. I have a little section on my bookshelf here of like some self-published books I've picked up from shows and the often it needs the enthusiasm of the author to convince me that despite how badly the design and layout of this book is that the story would be worth reading yeah. because a person's skill in writing is not the same as their skill in graphic design yeah. those are separate skills the other thing is that it's not just about the cover for me i'm thinking also about the editor person who proofreads it like i have the last self-published book i'm thinking of it right now has a horrible cover so your theory holds true um and the writing is not great. And I'm, I'm a writing instructor, so I can see it really clearly. You know, they needed a couple more passes at this. And an editor would have told them that. Somebody in that process would have told them that. But this, you know, to go off of what you're saying about that person being upset about it, it's because anybody, I could just write out stuff and publish it and put it out there, you know. And say, I'm published. Right. That's, I guess, I think that's what was upsetting your, uh, that person you're speaking. Sorry, I forget who it was. Scottish person. Uh, uh, yeah, Jack White. Yep. So the... I guess to Greg's point, it's true that you need to be able to sell your own work, but that's in that's true of whether you're self-publishing or traditional publishing, 
like the days of an author sitting behind the scenes and letting the publisher do all the work is like gone way way gone like you have to be able to out there be out there and do all these things to be able to sell your work anyway i think the problem with self-publishing and where the stigma comes from is exactly what you're talking about dan is that people can just write stuff boom throw it in the system on kdp published that's where the stigma comes from because there is a lot of just crap stuff that isn't edited that isn't proof that is thrown out there with a cheap nasty cover and unfortunately there's no way to different well there is a really good way to differentiate you sit down and read them but people aren't just going to take the time it it it's that piece that's really messy and there's just no way to monitor that and you know people say don't judge a book by its cover that's an age old thing but there's actually not true. You can judge most books by their covers because the cover contains the title, right? And it contains images reflective of the care taken to package this book. Totally. And if it seems like there is no graphic design sense and there is no um, illustrative attention paid to the design of the cover, that tells you a little bit about how much attention has been paid to the interior, the substantive edit, the layout, the design, uh, where the colophon is, all that kind of stuff, right, tells you how much care has been put into the entire process, yeah. right? It's like if you meet a person and they seem to have everything together and then their shoe is untied and they have a booger hanging from their nose, right? <laughs> those are like despite how well dressed they are, there is like a moment where you realize they're trying their best, but they haven't taken that last look. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick an example with you. You remember yeah. when you spoke in front of my class and you had a fluff hanging from I had a beard? fluff from my beard, yeah, I had a like, beard and fluff. He's like, he's like, hey, how's it going guys? He's all excited and you know, doing this Greg thing. And, and there's a big, like, it was from a scarf or something. Yeah, my scarf had a fluff. <laughs> and one of your students was amazing. They and just like, out, right hey there. man, you sound great. Take that thing off your face. <laughs> it was fantastic. And so that first impression is so important, right? Oh, it is. And sometimes you'll fall flat on your face, right? Not knowing it, but you should, you know? Well, there's so many ways you can fail. I mean, you can fail by, you know, through bad editing, bad proofing. You fail by not paying attention to the cover art. You can fail by sharing something on social media that you shouldn't. You can fail by being at a con and not effectively selling your own work. Like there's so you many know, different- being a bad writer too. That's okay. A, I suppose, yeah, all the way back to the, you could just be a bad writer. <laughs> That's yeah. entirely possible. Or bad at a certain book or a certain book doesn't connect with readers or, you know, there is such a thing. I don't think there's such a thing as bad creativity. But I do think there's such a thing as um, bad delivery. Well, so you could be a very that's right. There's some craft involved, and many authors that I've spoken to, uh, whether they're on big bestseller lists or whether they're just starting out, they all have something in common. They're terrified usually. And when we're speaking off uh, off the recording or off camera, they usually will confide that they're certain their new book is awful. They've yeah. lost the objectivity. And if not for an editor, a publisher, a person, those people who are taking the 90% share, what they're also doing is confiding in that author, you're good enough, you can do it. We're going to put money behind it. We're going to put marketing behind it. It is a story worth sharing and we'll prove it to you. 
Yes, it costs 90% of the profits, but we're running a whole machine here. And that reassurance is really nice, but it still doesn't, I think authors uh, in their very nature, they're always their, wor their own worst critics and they're always, they all believe that they're, 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 they're imposters in their own industry, which I, I'm, I'm personally not, but I'm one of the few oh, that has, right. I think I'm amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm stupidly overconfident. The other there. If you don't have that imposter syndrome, you automatically fool yourself. You're the greatest reader ever. That's what I always exactly. got. I have no qualms. I think I think what I do is pretty good. I, I'm happy with the the sphere that I that I operate within. Um, are there better? Of course, there's tons of better writers than me, but I, I, I'm pretty confident in what I do. But a case in point that I can't mention the name, but like New York Times bestselling author who I've been you know friendly with for the better part of 15 years. Uh, I I reached out to him and asked him if he would teach uh, a class for wordsmith and he sent me this heartbreaking email where he's like I just don't feel confident enough that I have anything worth sharing I'm like dude you have like I see your books everywhere you've been on bestseller list you tour around the world like how is it possible that you are not confident enough to be able to sit with you know 20 students and be like this is what this is how I did it because you just didn't have it you're better the next time and you always think someone is gonna notice when you didn't show up fully on every sentence, right? Sometimes you just write this, the connective tissue, right? Mm -hmm. And you know in your heart, you know, like, well, I needed this part to get from here to here. If I had a month, I could make it really good, but I actually have 20 minutes before it's due to the agent, mm -hmm. right? You know that all those things compile and you, they, they become a cloud of doubt around you. Sure. Tell, what is Wordsmith? Tell me about this. I don't know anything about it. So uh, Wordsmith Academy started out one way and has become something else. Um, the, how it started uh, was that I had developed a novel writing course about four years ago, which I taught for a couple of years to live, you know, in-person students, uh, usually about three or four different sections per year. And I wrote it simply because uh, I wanted to help people get out of their own way. I, you know, tripped and I fell and I stumbled my way into writing novels and being published and having an agent and all that kind of stuff. And if I had just known just, just a basic foundational understanding of certain things, I could have had a much straighter line through on that particular journey. So I wrote that novel writing course to try and help people basically, you know, learn story craft, you know, plan their stories to help them actually finish their stories, which was, you know, a big part of it. And, you know, the, the different paths to publishing that existed, which now I clearly have to edit, you know, a little more in favor of self-publishing than I had before. Um, and based on that, I went on a road trip with a friend of mine who's a graphic designer, videographer, a website designer, and he's like, we should put this online. Like, why don't we record it and make an online thing? So that's kind of where Wordsmith started. And we built it on the ethos that uh, it would be a writing hub, a community that we could build that would offer online courses where we would control the content. So we would actually fly in instructors. We had our studio space. We would film them. We would cut it together. Like we would make it look really good and be high quality. Um, we launched in November 2019. March 2020 is when COVID occurred and it messed everything up. We had to cancel people coming in. We couldn't do it the same way. And we just basically hunkered down and sat for six months being like, well, this will pass. <laughs> It'll all get better. Uh, and it didn't. And so then we had to pivot. So we pivoted into a different direction and decided, you know what? Okay, we'll, we'll let go of the quality side of it. 
we'll have people record wherever they are. We'll and we'll do because all the schools have been locked down and everything was all of a sudden live scheduled classes. We're like, we'll switch to that format. That is popular. Everyone is adapting to it. We'll do live scheduled classes. We did that in the fall of 2022, or fall of 2020. And it went really great. We filled a bunch of classes. We had some great instructors, people who we were going to fly in to record our original courses. And it was, it was awesome. They went really well. We got to spring 2021. We we're going to do it again. I was working full time. My business partner was working full time. We were exhausted. And we just kind of, we, we couldn't conceive doing another semester because it was so much work to put it all together, as successful as it was. Uh, so then I decided to quit my job June 2021 and was like, you know what, I'm going to let it go and I'm going to actually, you know, make something of this. I'll do my own freelance. I'll build my author platform to a better state than it has been. And we'll build Wordsmith into something. If I were to throw this toe into gold, what will you give me? Oh, anything. But what have I got of any worth? This ribbon. So we redid it again and we pivoted again, based on what was happening. So then we built it out so that we would have live classes. We would have online self-paced classes and then online self-paced courses, which would be longer form. And that's basically brings us to now, I suppose, obviously last week, at least as to what we've been uh, experiencing. And once again, we're finding that we have to pivot again because of the way that people's mindsets have gone as far as online classes and such are concerned. But that's kind of the long and short of it. Let's take a minute and talk about that change in people's behavior from I'm trapped at home. I'll take a course. Sure. To I probably should stay home, but now I don't have to. What has that done to how people show up for online content? I think there was a desperation when everything got locked down because it was something we, we as a civilization have not encountered, or at least generationally, we've not encountered it. We've never had to be locked down. None of us have, at least North America, have been through a war where we've had to stay home or hunker down. Just never occurred. So I think in a blind panic, and because it became a very natural thing for students in general to switch to online live scheduled classes, for that first year, that was the thing. We were drawn to online content that was available and scheduled. Why Tiger King was so popular. Like, you release Tiger King today, it ain't going to be as popular. Yeah. Uh, but then... We had little choice in the matter. Like it was, it, it, it happened at the right time. But then having to switch again um, this time around. Briefly to tell you a story. My wife was in the mountains of BC hiking with a friend. They were way off trail. They were in the middle of nowhere. They found this rickety bridge that sort of spanned two places and written in white paint across it was... Carol Baskin is guilty of murder. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the pandemic. So somebody felt really passionate about that. Yes, really passionate to just express themselves to the mountains and to the Brit. And they knew <laughs> someone eventually would have to find this place. That's where we were at, right? Like we felt like we we're in the middle of nowhere and we just needed any connection anywhere. Yeah, so people were jumping on everything. Like there was that, I think there was that, um, everybody had that mindset where, you know, I want to learn new things because what else am I going to do? All of a sudden I have time that I didn't have before. I might as well make use of it and do something and search for that connectivity that I would normally get from going out and do it elsewhere. And that all worked probably for the better part of a year. Um, now, now that everything is opening up, 
people are going out more. I think there's a weird mix happening, or what we're finding is a weird mix where we can't get people to show up to live scheduled online classes. People have I've run that gauntlet and I don't think they want it anymore, not in the same way. So now they're wanting in per, live in person classes again, I think. There seems to be a, a rise in, in that, or they want to be able to do things on their own time. They do not want to be held to show be somewhere at six o'clock, even if it is sitting in their comfiest chair in front of their computer. They simply don't want that anymore. Like it's that that switch has been really interesting to see and surprising because I didn't see it coming. <laughs> so we have to pivot as a result. I got something to say. Yeah, go, Dan. Go. I don't know to Let I, loose, oh, okay. Dan. Uh, Dan not the lion. Lose. I've been go. spending the last two years teaching. Um, I teach at Red River College here in Winnipeg. And so I've, I've been taking my material, which I normally teach in a classroom with students, like as, as you have done as well, and, and as I'm sure as, as you have done. Um, and then taking that material and putting it online on Teams or Zoom or one of these video conferencing platforms, there's something lost. And I can't quite quantify what it is there's a connection that is lost in that environment in the online environment that that is integral to learning and i i've struggled with it this last two years i cannot the person um, that taught psychology will tell you what's missing is your mirror neurons no what mirror neurons neurons the part i say that five times fast. mirror neurons it's the part of your brain that connects with the humans that are in closest proximity to you yeah our mirror neurons are active uh andrew i'm sorry ours are not that's just how I feel it. Of humans are okay, right, and so it's the way in which bad behavior or good behavior transfers through a crowd quickly. Mm. It's through mirror neurons. It's the part of your brain that mirrors the behavior of the people closest to you. So when you have one disruptive kid who then disrupts the kid next to him, and then they start talking, and then the next one starts talking, and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. The same is true of good behavior. If you have a, if you have those kids who normally disrupt, who are engaged. Mm-hmm. then it spreads yeah right so when you're online it's just the screen is not your your whole biology as a human being has evolved to read subtle cues in body language more so than language itself and so 80 percent of the actual information of a human being is absent in every online class and it's really hard to connect and that's why and that's why people are sick of it we don't have to do it anymore because things are opening up things are getting back to normal so people want to get back in person i think that's just the bare the basics and also the 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 transitional nature of that i mean i sympathize with you having to teach uh virtually i can't even imagine what that would be like to have to do that a lot (laughs) um i i I, only, I, did it, yes. I, I did it very little like because I I do a lot of school visits I visited school schools for the last six years and I've done workshops and presentations and it's always been the word amount that's spread about me is that it's always interactive it's always fun I always you know I can I can verbally spar with the kids I can make fun of kids and it, it all works really nicely in person when the pandemic hit and I didn't do anything for that first year and then last year I was like well I should do some virtual stuff at least and I did virtual ones but you can't see how the people how everyone's reacting mm-hmm. and it's so frustrating to not be able to have that piece but then when things did start to open up I started doing school visits at the end of um last year or was it early this year the mask mandate was still in effect so I had to wear masks wherever I went there was still a weird loss because all of this was cut off because you can see how people were emoting. And I talked to a bunch of teachers about it and said, yeah, it's a, it's a fucking nightmare because you simply can't, I, 
for one thing, I can't see how the kids are reacting to me, but the kids can't see my expression, how I'm trying to emote to them. And you're, even though you might have the body language side of it, this part of your face is so expressive that you're, you're, you're missing a piece. So when finally the mask mandate got lifted and I was in schools again, it was so different night and day. It was so much easier to be interactive and quick and snappy and keep them engaged because all of a sudden we can all see each other again. It's interesting. Uh, funny anecdote. I did Calgary Comic-Con recently and I was, I wore my mask, even though the lift mandate had been lifted in Alberta, it just didn't seem smart for me to do that. So, um, and it turns out good because many of the people who attended <clears throat> uh, had to visit there medical professionals soon after. But the point I'm gonna make is that I was masked and the person across from me who was not, who knows me a little bit, they're like, not only are you normally very expressive, you're a hand talker, Greg, you were like, your body was trying to make up for everything your face couldn't say. And it was just so obvious that they're, at one point they're like, it was like watching an episode of the Muppets, right? <laughs> Where I and I realized that that must have been true because I'm behind the table and I'm just trying so hard to connect with all those other parts, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so absolutely ridiculous. I am next week in schools for a week, and we will see how that goes. And I'll see if I can tone down the Fozzie Bear or the Kermit hands uh, and just uh, emote with my. Uh, fine features. We'll see how it goes. I'm so pleased with all this gold. What makes a good fairy tale? Good fairy tales. Um, I mean, arguably there's, there's a lot of different ways to uh, slice this one up, but my opinion, or as far as how I resonate with fairy tales, I mean, they have to teach some kind of moral lesson, but the moral lessons that fairy tales used to teach were based on, you know, the, the generational culture of the time. I mean, these were written yeah. 200 to 1,000 years ago, and it was fear a lot of... strangers. Yep, fear right. strangers. Don't, don't let your kids them. be alone. Yep. Old people in the woods might eat you. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's a... <laughs> <laughs> there was an inherent value in fairy tales back then for those reasons, because those were real threats that existed. So I, I get it. I What I really appreciated about those original ones before um, the Brothers Grimm got hold of them and made them all happily ever after stuff was that they were really quite gruesome. Like they were dark, they were sinister, they were horror stories, and they had serious, terrible outcomes to them, which I really in, enjoyed because it, it was it was almost told in a weird, darkly humorous slant but then, you know, the woman got cooked in the oven at the end. I'm like, holy shit, you just cooked somebody alive. That's really horrible. <laughs> but you really taught a nice lesson in it. Uh, so I, I like that that element of fairy tales. So when I started to write my own fairy tales, and based on the world of Stiltskin, which is a, a really kind of messed up, bastardized version of a lot of the fairy tales anyways, I, I kind of wanted those dark kind of elements to it. So the creatures and the stuff that I was playing with, I made mermaids to be horrible man-eating creatures and that kind of thing. So... I, I think they have to teach a lesson that is a little more current to, for current generations. And I think they still have to hold a bit more of a gruesome edge, but told in a humorous slant because that still resonates with people. When I tell those fairy tales in schools, whether it's elementary school or middle or high, or high schools, they all love them. Elementary schools even more so really liked all the gruesome dark stuff. Like they, they love that, those pieces. So I, it's almost like think, the less exposure they have to anything actually horrible, 
Mm-hmm. They can imagine it in a fun way. Yeah, and it's it's told in a humorous way. So it's not like it's, you know, and then he, you know, he's eaten alive and his flesh was rendered from his body. It's nothing like that. It's just, you know, and then she slithered up behind him and bit off his head. And that's kind of the end of you know in that sense, you know. There's a nice little um offhand dark humor to it that I, I really enjoy writing. So to me, that that is what makes a good fairy tale, kind of a combination of dark humor with a lesson that speaks to current you know generational issues um i I think it's the best way to go about it whether i actually attain that i don't don't know but i I like to think i did do you have a favorite cautionary tale in the new horrible fairy tales collection (laughs) um yeah i I, I like them all and rereading them after having written them you know years ago was actually kind of fun and you know rewriting a few of them a little bit to to improve them a little was really great but there's one about um, called The Last Sorcerer, which is quite literally about, you know, this old sorcerer in this parallel world of this side, which is the world that's in stilled skin. And he's the last sorcerer, last of his kind. And he's never done anything to leave his mark on the world. And he's going to die soon. And he wants to do it. So he decides that he's going to invent the perfect female. And that is what he's going to leave. That's what's going to leave his mark on the world by creating the perfect ever female. And so he does it all in an elaborate fashion as a sorcerer would. And he, you know, makes it a re- makes her a redhead, which I joke about redheads a fair amount in a lot of my work because I'm married to one and my daughter's one, so I feel I have some. I'm, I'm, I'm well, lucky. You, you the right, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I make fun of them in every class I go to, and it's always funny. But um, although I did call one a ginger once in a classroom, and I got talk, I got a talking to from the teacher afterwards. Apparently, that's not good. Yeah, probably not allowed to do that. I didn't, I didn't know. That. Anyways, so that he creates this female this perfect female as far as he sees it and he pulls all of the energy and mental and emotional value from a nearby village to funnel into this creation so that she has a mind of her own but the village he's funneling it from is a village full of angry women who believe that they don't need a man to justify their existence and it's this village called feminist feministry or something like that and so it's just so she gets imbued with all this, you know, rage. So when he brings it alive, she's just standing on top of a dark mountaintop naked and this old man smiling at her. And so she immediately like loses her mind and she ends up, ends up pushing her, or throwing a rock at him and he ends up falling to his death down the cliff. And the whole, you know, point of it is that you shouldn't mess with what you simply don't understand or have any capacity. And also to fear redheads is kind of the, the parallel um, lesson that goes with that is one of my favorites because i can relate to it really well having been married to a redhead having a teenage daughter who's a redhead so that's that still remains to be one of my favorites uh do you find that modern collections of students are still being read fairy tales are still aware of fairy tales are fairy tales something that are still around in everyday circles yes uh, only because I've taught for a fairy tale workshop for like six years now, and it's still the most popular one I've ever written and taught. And it, I always open it with like, tell me all the fairy tales you can. And everybody knows the fairy tales, no matter what age they are, no matter you know what part of the country they're from. Everybody knows fairy tales. There's a lifelong resonance to those things that just surpasses everything else which is really weird yeah but... i'm absolutely astounded by it i teach a, i have a, a graphic novel project called fairy tale ending and i took all the character designs for it and i made a interactive um, classroom story project that i did over pandemic with about 40 different classrooms and what was amazing is i gave them a choice they 
students could pick from one of 45 or 50 different fairy tale characters. And even the ones that were so obscure, like um, uh, the girl with no hands or, you know, like all these weird ones that I was like, only I who've been researching this for years and putting all this together will know what these are. And I get to be the expert and tell them, no, kids knew it. And I couldn't get over how well, that's still so prevalent uh, cross-culturally. Well, it's not even that. It's not like they don't even just know like the ones that they've grown up listening to or seeing in Disney movies. Like I, I've been in a few elementary schools where I've been in a grade six class where I've been blown away that I'm like, okay, do you want to know what the real ending to, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is? And there's always going to be one weird messed up kid who's like, I know what happened. And they know what the original horrible gruesome ending to Snow White is. I'm like, that's, I'm shocked you know this, but that's amazing. Can we say so what really, it is? I don't even know what it is. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's kind of happens the same way up until the end because in the, like the Disney-fied happy ending version, the evil queen dies. She gets she falls down a cliff and is killed. Um, in the original fairy tale, she was invited to Prince Charming and Snow White's wedding, and when she got there, she was made to wear red hot metal shoes, and then she danced herself to death. The dwarves made her shoes in red hot metal, and they put them on her heat, and she's you know burning alive, but they call it a dance. Right. Until she dies. Until she dies. Yeah. Oh she dies that way and said at their wedding. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Right. Yeah. I mean, so pretty dark. Those grim, grimmest of the grim, those ones. They are. Yeah. So the fairy tale that we've really been talking about up until the very end is the fairy tale of publishing. How it works, what is a happy ending in publishing? That's really been what we've been talking about. It's true. So if you were to sum up your life as a writer so far as a fairy tale what would the cautionary tale what would the moral be that you would tell another author who wanted to who read the story of your publishing life i think it's that you don't limit yourself to whatever the conventional methodology is going is or whatever you believe the conventional method of publishing is because we live in a world where there's, you know, 30 different ways to do everything now. I don't think you, uh, my biggest mistake early on was that I was very determined to go a very traditional route through agent, through publisher. And there's so many different ways to do that now. You can take your work and you can, you know, cross different media mediums and turn it into something else, into a live audio show, into a theater production, into a podcast, into whatever it is that you wanted to do. I, I think the important thing and something that I've definitely subscribed to the last two years is that you take the opportunities as they come and you try everything. There's no harm in trying things. I mean, you have a certain amount of risk evaluation, but the fact is if an opportunity is presented to you and you see that there's going to be some, you know, merit in it, as far as you as a creator, why would not, why won't you try it? Like there's no harm in giving, taking the shots. Yeah. To remember that publishing is the byproduct of writing, not the point of writing. Exactly. Yeah, well, money is the point of writing. Yeah, money. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that is the cautionary tale. Money is what you're striving for, people. The king's shilling. Beware the king's shilling. I I often say, um, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, allowing us to unpack not just the writing part, but the business side and your approach to uh, getting your work into the world. Um, I am Gregory Kamichak. This has been Super Pulp Science, and I'm encouraging you all to join the fight and make comments.